Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And welcome everybody at Cresta in the Afternoon. I am Gary Machuda sitting in for El Cresta. And uh, man, it's always a thrill to be able to sit down and talk for two hours about the things that matter most on the program. And uh, for those who aren't familiar with me, I've been working in the field of apologetics uh, since the early 1990s. I've written several books on the area of defending the faith. My latest book is called The Gospel Truth, How You Can Know What Christ Taught. It's put out by Emmaus Road Press. I'm also the host of Hands-On Apologetics on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And uh, you can check out my stuff at handsonapologetics.com. And that's pretty much me. But uh, what about the show? Well, hey, we got two fantastic hours for you today. Coming up on the second hour, we're going to talk about embracing Mary as a convert. You know, Mary, Mary is quite contrary for those who are thinking of entering into the church and also those who maybe have already entered and they still are having difficulty uh, embracing Mary and teaching and doctrine. Well, we're going to have Noah Braddon on of CrossTheTiber.org. And he's going to go through three steps in which converts come to eventually embracing Marian teaching. We're also going to have in the second hour, Brian Mercier, Catholic. Brian's going to be joining us. We're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is evangelism, how Catholics can evangelize the culture. And he does a lot of work on social media, so that will be a lot of fun. And this hour, we're going to go over what is the best argument for the existence of God. And Pat Flynn, who is a convert from atheism, is going to come on and talk about his brand new book by that title, The Best Argument for God. And also in this hour, we are going to uh, talk about the gospel last Sunday and a very interesting one with uh, Jesus and the Pharisees. We have Peggy Stanton come on and we're going to break down that reading. So, boy, we have our docket set and we're ready to roll. But of course, before we begin the program, it's important for us to look at today's headlines. So here's today's headlines with Steve Clark. Thanks, Gary. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Thursday, October 19th. It's the Feast of St. John de Brebeuf, Isaac Jogues, and Companions. Today's news brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at charitymobile.com. The number of Americans killed in the conflict between Israel and Hamas is rising. 32 uh, are deceased. 11 remain unaccounted for. State Department spokesman Matt Miller says U.S. officials are working to try and secure the release of hostages held by Hamas. Thousands of Israelis and Palestinians have died and thousands more injured as the war escalates. President Biden will speak on the wars in Israel and Ukraine from the Oval Office tonight. The president is expected to lay out why the conflicts are critical to the national security of the U.S. Meanwhile, his administration is expected to ask Congress to approve for about $100 billion in supplemental funding for Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan, as well as address the southern border crisis. 
A group of kidnapped Catholics have been released by Nigeria. Three nuns, along with a seminarian and a driver, were abducted October 5th en route to a funeral. In a statement, the vicar general of their order said that they had been released following the payment of a ransom and thanked the faithful for their prayers and support. And Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan will not seek a third vote to become Speaker of the House today. This comes after he failed to get the necessary votes from members of his own party during two rounds of ballots earlier this week. Jordan, however, will reportedly remain Speaker-designee and try to rally the votes at a later time. House Republicans are now meeting behind closed doors and are discussing possibly expanding interim Speaker Patrick McHenry's powers on a short-term basis. And Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell hinting that slower labor market and economic growth are what's needed to bring down inflation. The Fed will be making a decision whether or not to raise interest rates next month. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. And welcome back to Crust in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda sitting in for Al Crusta. Let's talk about last Sunday's reading, Render Unto Caesar. And the reading's from Matthew 22, 15 through 21, which reads, The Pharisees went off and plotted how they might entrap Jesus at speech. And they sent the disciples to him with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're a truthful man and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And you are not concerned with anyone's opinion, for you do not regard a person's status. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it lawful to pay the census tax to Caesar or not? Knowing their malice, Jesus said, Are you... Are you why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin that pays the census tax. When they handed him the Roman coin, he said unto them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? They replied, Caesar's. At that he said to them, Then repay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. So that's the uh, last Sunday's reading and we're going to break that down with peggy stanton by the way peggy is the author of from the white house to the white cross uh, she's a dame of the Order of malta she was on abc's news first female washington correspondent and she hosted many programs for ew excuse me for ave maria radio including the malta minute with the catechism her first book was the daniel dilemma the Moral Man in the Public Arena, and her newest book is The Order of Malta, Minutes with the Catechism. And Peggy, welcome to Crest in the Afternoon. Thank you, Gary. Nice to have you here, too. Yeah, well, it's, it's a pleasure to meet with you and to talk about this reading. It's a very interesting reading, and probably the best place to begin is uh, let's identify the parties involved. Who are the Pharisees and who are these Herodians? Right. Well, well, it's this Sunday's upcoming gospel, um, and uh, I think we're very familiar with um, our Lord's words there. Um, you often hear uh, that phrase bandied about, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God what things that are God's. So you ask a good question, what is the historical uh, context in which this gospel happened. Um, it is, uh, I'm quoting here from uh, theologian Professor 
John Bergsma of Franciscan University in his book, Word of the Lord, um, he says, we have an unholy alliance here between the Pharisees and the Herodians, two groups that usually were at odds with one another, <laughs> like the Israelis <laughs> and the Palestinians. Huh? Right. The Pharisees were professional religious scholars who wanted all Jews to follow their understanding of how to live out the law of Moses. The Herodians were political animals who had thrown in their lot with the dynasty of the Herods, a kind of real politic movement. And the okay. power of both, excuse me, go ahead, Gary. Okay, no, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. The power of both were threatened by Jesus, this politically incorrect teacher from Nazareth who never would say the right things in public. And they try to trap Jesus in a political dilemma during a public interview like inter TV. I kind of gasp when I have to read this, like TV interviewers. <laughs> Try to trap politicians they don't like. I have to say, even ones we did like, <laughs> with, <laughs> with a no-win political question. Yeah. In this case, the Herodians and Pharisees figure there is no right answer that Jesus can give to their question about paying taxes to Caesar. Because if Jesus says it's right to pay taxes... They will go around spreading the news that Jesus supports this tyrannical Roman regime with all its human rights abuses. And on the other hand, if Jesus says it's wrong to pay taxes, they will immediately report him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, saying, don't you know you have a renegade teacher from the back hills of Galilee give, going around Jerusalem telling people not to pay their taxes? And that would be certain, uh, Bergsman says, to get Jesus arrested and put away for good. Uh, that came a little bit later, let's face it. Jesus, however, is more than a match for their political machinations. He gives this interpretation, uh, Bergsman gives this interpretation of Jesus' response. He says, he thinks it. Uh, repay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar can be understood like this, if you are going to participate in the Roman currency system and benefit from it, you must also be willing to play by its rules. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees were wealthy and benefited from Pax Romana, a little having peace with Rome. In particular, the Roman government permitted the Jewish government in Jerusalem to tax all expatriate Jewish subjects living in the Roman Empire, an amount consisting of about two days of wages per year for the support of the temple. Since there were millions of Jewish subjects living in the empire, this resulted in an enormous annual influx of cash to Jerusalem and its environs greatly enriching the Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, and other groups. So Jesus calls out the Pharisees and Herodians for their hypocrisy. They're only too happy to let the empire collect taxes for the temple, but will they refuse to pay the empire taxes to Caesar, 
taxes to Caesar, who is authority and has legions keeping them in power. So there is the deeper question and message uh, Bergsman asserts to Jesus' words. Render to God what belongs to God. Caesar's image is stamped on a mere coin, but according to Genesis 1, and 27, the image and likeness of God is stamped on each human person. Therefore, our whole selves, everything we have, and are belong to God and should be a gift to his service. This too the Pharisees and the Herodians did not see. They were more concerned about maintaining their social and political power than about being devoted to God. And we too can fall into the same trap. It's a mistake, for example, to give our lives fighting for political causes even good ones, to the neglect of our souls and the souls of others. The affirmation of the first reading and responsorial psalm are that human politics are ultimately under the direction of God. Yet for all that, the goal of human existence is not the perfect earthly society, whatever we might think that looks like. The goal of human existence, Bergsma asserts again, is union with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And only Jesus Christ is stamped with the face of the Father. Only he reveals to humanity that God is our Father, and Jesus alone provides us the way to be united with the Father in perfect communion for eternity. And that's the whole historical uh, context. The only thing I found in the catechism was some direction uh, for modern day living out this gospel. And before I read that, um, Gary, do you have any thoughts on, on what uh, we just discussed? Yeah, I think uh, it shows that, you know, what's your ultimate goal would be how you ultimately answer that question. Mm -hmm. And if it's union with God, then it really isn't a dilemma. It isn't a gotcha question. But, uh, you know, Jesus is able to turn that trap against his enemies in this case. And you have to smile. I mean, it's just amazing how our Lord does that to yeah. those who try to trap him. I know. Isn't it? Uh, and and you've written a, a book on the gospel, your latest book, so uh, you've studied it very carefully. Uh, isn't it often? It's it's amazing how often our Lord uses questions yeah. uh, to, to, um, to elicit uh, almost confirmation of what he is thinking and and his teaching uh, coming from the person he asked the question of. Yeah, yeah, very, uh, very good rabbi. Rabbis love to answer questions with questions. So, uh, so you said the, the catechism has some text to help us apply this in today's life. Right, right. Well, paragraph 2242 says, the citizen is obliged in conscience not to follow the direction of civil authorities when they are contrary to the demands of the moral order, to the fundamental rights of persons, or the teachings of the gospel. 
refusing obedience to civil authorities when their demands are contrary to those of an upright conscience finds its justification in the distinction between serving God and serving the political community. And that, of course, then the catechism points directly to our Lord's uh, question or in statement, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Um, in other words, we must obey God rather than men. And uh, um, then the catechism um, quotes Gaudium Spes. Do I pronounce that correctly? Yep. Gaudium et Spes, yep. Yeah. Um, from John Paul II, where he says, when citizens are under the oppression of a public authority which oversteps its competence, they should still not refuse to give or to do what is objectively demanded of them by the common good, but it is legitimate for them to defend their own rights and those of their fellow citizens against the abuse of this authority within the limits of the natural law and the law of the gospel. Hmm. Now, Gary, how would you interpret that paragraph? Yeah, yeah. so uh, uh, basically, uh, when the government oversteps its authority, um, we have the right to defend ourselves. And in the sense that, you know, uh, they have to operate within the limits of natural law and positive law. At least that's how I read it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, very good. I, well, hear, I hear the music, yeah, and that I means hear. it's the end yeah, of our discussion. <laughs> it, it flew. Uh, Peggy, where can people go to get more information about your book? Uh, well, they can go to um, shopmercy.org, and that is the publisher's uh, website. They can also get the book from Ave Maria's um, store. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Parents often complain that their kids either don't do their chores or don't do a good job with them. How can parents teach kids to do chores well? The easiest way to teach kids healthy attitudes toward chores is to create family work rituals where families do chores together. Daily family work rituals give parents and kids an opportunity to work side by side, learning good stewardship, responsibility, and teamwork. Family work rituals provide on-the-job training for chores so that when kids eventually get their own chores, they know what's expected of them and how to do them well. That's one reason family rituals for working together are such an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Do we the people in the pews have the responsibility to be witnesses to the gospel in the way we act and speak? Yes, asserts the Catholic Catechism. The Catechism defines witness as an act of justice that establishes truth or makes it known. As a witness, we manifest the new person we have put on in baptism, and we reveal the power of the Holy Spirit which was strengthened in us through reception of confirmation. Martyrdom, says the Catechism, is the supreme witness to the truth given us through faith. St. Ignatius of Antioch boldly proclaimed, Let me become food of the beast through whom it will be given to reach God. 
The Catechism hails martyrs as archives of truth written in letters of blood. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I told him about the woman who came to me and said her two children hadn't spoken to each other for two years. Their grandma died, and she was very wealthy. She left half to each one. She said they're arguing over a commode. She said it's inlaid. Can you imagine being in hell? And somebody saying to you, what are you here for? EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. Curo's Christ centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit CMFCuro.com to learn more. That's CMFCuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Welcome back, everybody. Cresta in the afternoon. I'm Gary Machida, sitting in for the great El Cresta. And, you know, back in the 1990s, atheism was, wasn't even on the radar screen. It, it wasn't part of the dialogue that Catholics were having with the rest of the world till 9-11 in the new atheism. But, you know, after all the rhetorical smoke and mirrors of the new atheist arguments have gone to past, there's been room for some very good, meaty, and yet popular works on demonstrating the existence of God. And uh, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about, a brand new book by Pat Flynn called The Best Argument for God. It's uh, published by Sophia Institute Press. And Pat is a writer, philosopher, podcaster, a speaker, living in Wisconsin with his wife and five children, and a St. Bernard. He hosts Philosophy for the People on YouTube. And also the Pat Flynn Show, and you can check out all his great stuff at his website, which is chroniclesofstrength.com. And Pat Flynn, welcome to Crest in the Afternoon. Gary, it's always a joy to be chatting with you. Thanks for having me on. Well, you know, Pat, uh, it's it's this, I always uh, chat with you is like getting credit hours <laughs> at the university. I'm always learning new things from you. And uh, congratulations on the new book. Now, has it already been released, or is it about to be released? Yes, it actually came out just this week, Gary. So it's 
been a busy week with a lot of promotional activities, but it's been a fun week, and I'm just excited for this book to finally get out there and hear what people think of it. Yeah, and boy, you are, God really has the, the uh, deck stacked for you to write this book. Uh, maybe we could take a couple of minutes and you could just kind of give us an outline of your journey of faith because you were once a studied atheist. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of what motivated me to write this book was my former self in mind. While I would have considered myself an atheist, or really a naturalist, which is just the philosophically developed form of atheism, I wasn't somebody who had any particular issue with religion. I wasn't inherently biased against it. I really had just never heard a great philosophical case for the existence of God. So my, my journey was, was a windy one. You know, for many years I was just trying to make sense of reality, really, of trying to have the biggest questions that I thought were the most important to me answered from an atheistic perspective. And Gary, consistently, I found that the atheistic paradigm, the naturalistic worldview, was completely inadequate. It just wasn't up to the task. It couldn't make sense of really big fundamental questions of why does anything exist instead of nothing. It couldn't make sense of human consciousness, I don't think. It couldn't make sense of our moral experience, the moral dimension. It couldn't make sense of the rational dimension. It couldn't make sense of, uh, it really couldn't make sense of the religious dimension either. I never even thought that most of these sort of evolutionary, you know, debunking arguments, if you want to call them that, really were a very adequate account um, to explain the, the, the emergence of religious or mystical experiences. So really at every point that I think uh, required a critical explanation, I found that uh, naturalism just, it didn't have it. It, it you know, it, mm. all those promissory notes of, of people telling me for so many years that, hey, just give it time, we're going to be able to science all this, uh, was completely full of air. And the deeper I went into naturalism, the more problems I, I really found, that at one point I eventually I just gave it all up. I threw my hands up, and I, I really just said to myself, I don't know what's true, uh, but I'm almost certain that this isn't it, right, that the atheistic mm -hmm. worldview isn't it. And then I took another course, so I sort of went back to some very old philosophers that I had a passing familiarity with, but never studied very deeply, mostly the pagans, you know, Aristotle and, and Plato, and I started to find a world picture that was, in many ways, a lot more holistic, a lot more satisfying, it wasn't so reductionistic, and to, you know, compress the story a little bit, Gary, by the time I got to that great thinker, St. Thomas Aquinas, and not just Thomas Aquinas himself, but all of the fellow Thomists, all the people who have followed in the footsteps of Thomas Aquinas, it was then that I really felt like um, I had come to in, a point of intellectual satisfaction, right? Or at least a school of thought where I believed that you could make sense of the the all the things of our experience that need to be made sense of, from consciousness to free will to morality, and you could do so in a systematic, unified way. I, I, I finally found a world picture that uh, could have everything hang together, that didn't cause me to abandon core commitments, moral commitments, um, commitments concerning human free will. This would be another big one. But, of course, within that world picture... Uh, it all ultimately had to be grounded by God, right? That God was the ultimate explanation for everything going on in the Thomistic worldview. And I often point out to people that when it comes to uh, Thomism, and for, pe for people who aren't totally familiar with that term, it just really refers to the school of thought following Thomas Aquinas. 
I, I really like to think of that as this sort of completion of perennial philosophy of the sort of of the sort of philosophy that thinkers like Plato and Aristotle were up to. Yes, they had their differences, but they were far more similar and had far and far more in common uh, with each other than they do with so many modern day materialist philosophers. So I always like to mm. think of, of Thomas as the last great classical philosopher, even more than, say, the first great medieval philosopher or something like that. And then, you know, jump ahead just a little bit. You can't spend too much time with Thomas or or Thomas in general without getting a heavy dose of theology and becoming open to uh, to Christianity as well. So I didn't stop at mere theism, as we know, as I as I, as I stand before you as a fellow Catholic, right? <laughs> yeah, and so that was your entrance into the Catholic Church was through Thomas, and uh, yeah, it, it, it's truly. Uh, I love hearing your story because you don't always find these people who essentially read themselves into the faith, you know, uh, but one of the beautiful things about converts who do that is they really know all the nooks and crannies of the other position, right? Because you've lived it, you've tried to make it work, you've tested it different ways. And so when you say, I found it wanting, you, I mean, this is not something that you just brushed off because it was difficult. This is something that you really worked through. Yeah, I, I like to think so. And, you know, I'm, I'm not the only one. Many of the atheists that um, I had read at the time uh, themselves abandoned atheism. Uh, or, or they went the other route, and they just embraced the absurdities that seemed to be entailments of the system, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you can take any really sort of old atheist, Nietzsche, being the most famous one, and he just seems to want to just ride out the absurdities. He's a moral nihilist. Uh, he's got many lines that I think um, theists should, you know, sort of trot around more often, uh, because I think they ultimately endorse a theistic worldview. He says, without God, you can't even have grammar. He thinks the world is fundamentally absurd from an atheistic perspective, and I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only difference between us is that I think that once, once something reduces to the absurd— you should walk back the steps that you've taken, <laughs> and really, when it comes to uh, worldview comparison, you should just switch that fundamental paradigm so you can avoid those absurdities. But you will find many atheists, old and new, who I think try to think consistently from their starting commitments uh, and more or less just embrace absurdities that I find personally impossible to embrace, but for whatever reason, their commitment to a godless worldview is so strong I guess they feel they have no other choice. But for me, it was the opposite. You know, once the absurdities continued piling up, my commitments to certain, I think, undeniable features of reality, like moral experiences, the fact that we are conscious, um, the fact that we have rationality, the fact that we have some degree of significant freedom or free will, these things were so much more obvious to me than any sort of reductive materialism being true, that it really wasn't that hard for me to go back and reject that starting point, so long as I saw that there were some plausible alternatives. And, and that's really what my book is about, is to show that not only is theism a plausible alternative, it's a rationally compelling one. It's, it's far more coherent and consistent than an atheistic worldview. And so if people share the, the same commitments that I do, and I think the vast majority of people, in fact, do, because their commitments really have common sense, I'm there to show all the rational connections uh, between those commitments and a theistic worldview, why a theistic worldview best explains why something exists rather than nothing, or an objective morality, uh, or rationality, or human consciousness. All these different things, I show theism offers a far simpler, more robust explanation of these phenomena 
whereas naturalism either offers a very weak explanation if, if, if it's extremely contrived or offers no explanation at all, it really has to eliminate or deny the phenomena is as we commonly experience it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So instead of like introducing the reader to a whole system of metaphysics, you, you basically go point by point, you know, laying out the case for God and contrasting it with the naturalist uh, view and showing that it simply doesn't connect all the dots. Yeah, that's right. The, the way my book works is I start off with a, a sort of description of worldview comparison, and this is just the sort of game that philosophers play. A worldview is a big picture of everything. It's a philosophical big picture. And philosophers establish worldviews to try and just give a coherent narrative, really, about reality, right? Like, what's mm-hmm. the grand narrative of everything? And a worldview is typically supposed to explain large-scale features of reality. How do we make sense of things like contingency, the fact that some things are, but they didn't need to be? What accounts for that? Or the emergence of consciousness, how do we make sense of that? Uh, or the moral dimension, or the rational dimension, uh, or the order and stability that we see in the world, right? So these big, large-scale features of reality that are accessible to all, that are affirmed by all, really by common sense and daily experience, a worldview needs to give an account of these different things. And the way worldview comparison works is philosophers make arguments, right? And they and they try to show that one worldview, uh, for whatever reason, can b- better explain some particular phenomena like consciousness or contingency rather than another other worldview. Or if they're on an explanatory par, then maybe they make appeals to simplicity. Well, okay, maybe maybe we have a sort of equally good explanation from both of these perspectives, but one is simpler. So let's let's go with, with parsimony or something like that. So that's exactly what my book does. It, it sets out two competing worldviews. The ones I'm interested in are classical theism, which of course is the uh, notion of God affirmed dogmatically by the Catholic faith, and metaphysical naturalism, which is a sort of philosophically developed form of atheism, as I said. And then each each section, each chapter just takes up for consideration something that a worldview needs to explain, and at every every point I argue that naturalism either really has no explanation at all, or if it does have some explanation, it's a far worse explanation than theism and often comes with a heavy amount of ad hoc complication. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff we work through in the book, but that's the that's the short summary version of it, anyways. <laughs> yeah, it's a good, very good summary, um, it, because you cover a lot, and I hear the music coming up, so we'll hit pause right there. We're chatting with Pat Flynn of Philosophy for the People on YouTube, talking about his brand new book, The Best Argument for God. More to come right after this. You're listening to Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? 
stanthonyservices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. You and your spouse are invited to cruise with Royal Caribbean this January, along with Father Michael Schmidt, Archbishop Nauman, Al, Teresa, Dr. Ray, and many others. Get away with your spouse on a fun, relaxing, and rejuvenating cruise with inspiring speakers, daily mass, and endless memorable experiences. Father Michael Schmidt's comments, you'll encounter an amazing community of couples and speakers, and most importantly, you'll encounter Christ. More details at AveMariaRadio.net. Just click the travel link. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Father Benedict Rochelle. Brothers and sisters, we got to tell the truth in this country. For heaven's sakes, I wouldn't want to go to a synagogue and find that they were having a Muslim service. I wouldn't want to go to a mosque and run into a Baptist service. I don't want to go to a Baptist church and find out that they're having mass. We've got to be honest to ourselves. We've got to be what we are. I'd rather a good old-fashioned, honest agnostic than a phony Christian any day of the week. There are reluctant agnostics. There are atheists who are searching for God, and they may find Him. But somebody who says they're doing something in the name of God and the name of Christ, and God and Christ have nothing to do with it, is violating this commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall not take my name in vain. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. And welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda sitting in for El Cresta. We're chatting with Pat Flynn, the author of the book, The Best Argument for God. It's put out by Sophia Institute Press. So, Pat, I, I love the title. It, it's it's uh, you really do step out there and say <laughs> the best argument for God. How did you how did you come up with the best? Because there's so many different arguments, so many different approaches. I'm just curious. Uh, you know, how were you able to narrow it down to just a particular 
approach. Yeah, clearly I like modest titles, as you can tell, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I always qualified. I said the best argument. I didn't say a good one. But that's a joke. <laughs> I actually think it's quite a good one, quite a compelling one. Yes. So the deepest inspiration for this comes from Thomas Aquinas in his Summa when he's considering objections against the existence of God. Interestingly, he only considers two. And that's interesting because if you're familiar with Aquinas, he usually considers like an entire museum of objections to pretty much any position. But when it comes to God, a very big topic, he only considers two. And one of them is the problem of evil, of course, a very perennial objection or at least question or mystery. And indeed, the final chapter of my book has a lot to say about that. But it was actually the second objection that inspired me for multiple reasons. And that second objection is this. It essentially says, hey, look, the principles of nature are enough. We don't actually need God to explain anything. And the reason this objection interested me is because, one, it has certainly kind of stood this test of time. Many contemporary atheists still press this type of line, but it's also the sort of objection that I probably would have pressed myself when I was a naturalist. Hmm. And it's more, and it, in its more contemporary form, it would say something like this, Gary. It would say, hey, if two theories explain just as much, then we should believe the simpler one. Uh, and guess what? Atheism and natural, I'm sorry, theism and naturalism, they explain just as much, but naturalism is simpler. So let's believe naturalism. That's the idea. That's the objection. And what, what I wanted to do, and what I believe is ultimately correct, is, uh, is the reversal of that argument. So the entire thesis of my book, what I claim is the best argument for God, is just a, a sort of reversal of what I consider the best argument against God. So its statement would say something like this, that naturalism can only explain some, but not all of what theism can, but only when strapped with far greater complexity. So, believe theism. And and part of the other reason I wanted to venture that as a sort of master thesis of the book is because it allows me to explore many different arguments to form what I think is a very powerful and persuasive cumulative case for theism. It opens me up to explore all manner of different things, from consciousness, again, to contingency, to morality, and show how each of them can provide links or a bridge built by reason to the existence of God. So it was a little self-indulgent there, because I think there's actually a lot of really good arguments for God that can be launched from many different um, features of the world or aspects of our experience. And so by setting up the book in the way that I did, I was able to explore the ones that at least have have fascinated me the most, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that approach because it makes the book into a good introduction for someone who's serious about arguments about God uh, because you, you get to cover a lot more ground than if you only picked like one line of thought or one line of argument. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that, you know, when you try to persuade somebody, especially when it comes to, you know, changing their worldview, which is, you know, no small thing, it helps to have more than one argument. You know, cumulative cases just tend to be more persuasive. And I think, and even though I think that there are, you know, several arguments that that are quite dispositive by themselves, you know, I just think when we think deeply about the nature of the contingent world and how it points to a necessary foundation, which we can then conceptually unpack as the god of classical theism, I think that that is a quite decisive argument in and of itself. But I understand that just for pure practical and psychological reasons, uh, it helps to have it helps to have backup, right? It, it helps mm-hmm. to have a sort of array of different arguments and reasons and evidences that all converge upon the same conclusion. Because different people will be attracted to different lines of thought, they will they will share different 
lower level fundamental commitment. So having these different angles of approach, I think, is really important, uh, certainly apologetically. Uh, but I've also found that it's, you know, for me personally as well, um, it, it, it strengthens my confidence in the theistic worldview and in Catholicism indeed, just because you can see um, how you can get to God from so many different paths. And there's something about that convergence. When you keep converging upon the same conclusion, that itself, I think, is a very powerful indicator that you're onto something, right? That you're that you're moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you took the book and say the best argument for God and you just drilled down along, like, let's say the contingency argument and really didn't go beyond that, it's easy for people to dismiss it, right? Uh, they could misrepresent it. They could dismiss it. Uh, maybe they could offer some alternatives and try to make it into a draw. I'm, I'm not sure if you could, but you could try it. Mm-hmm. But when you when you use like a robust case like you give in this book, where, like you said, that you're hitting on all these cylinders and they all coalesce to the same essential conclusion, uh, boy, that's really hard to dismiss. I certainly think so. And not only that, but I try to make the account systematic. So these arguments aren't disparate, right? They, they, they converge into a single system. So mm-hmm. if we start with, say, contingency, and if the listeners aren't familiar, a contingent thing is just anything that exists but doesn't have to exist. I mean, I'm a contingent thing, right? The, the table I'm sitting at, the desk I'm sitting at is a contingent thing. Photons, corn, Ingve Malmstein, all these things are, but there's nothing about their essence that demands their existence, if you will, that demands that they be included in reality. And the traditional line of thought here, an argument that I develop in much more detail in the book, is that if we're going to get an adequate explanation of why there's any contingent thing at all, we need to escape that category. We need to move to the non-contingent or the necessary, to something whose essence really just is its existence, that is sort of qualitatively perfect, infinite, unbounded, um, pure, simple, subsistent existence, to use the language of, of Thomas Aquinas, right? And then when we think about that, when we think about that long and hard, we can unpack all the divine attributes uh, that entail the sort of qualitative, absolute, unbounded perfection of God. And then within that system, we can make predictions of what we would expect if that were at the root of reality. And in the book, I show that, look, from this very simple theory, you know, God is infinitely perfect, of course, we can't wrap our mind around God, but in terms of just like a theory, there's just one fundamental principle at the bottom of it, right? Which is just mm-hmm. this, this perfect being, this one perfect being. It's a very simple root, at least in uh, uh, what's relevant for worldview comparison. We can predict a universe with a great chain of being, a great diversity of being, just as many philosophers have through the tradition. We can predict beings like us, of con- well, conscious beings with free will, we can predict the moral dimension because the world is ordered. It's teleological. Things are directed towards certain ends, uh, and when they hit those ends, they are sort of perfected as the sorts of things that they are. And so what I do is I show how the arguments hang together, how everything sort of fits into a coherent system, that from this very simple theistic root, uh, we can we can move by reason in different directions. We can move from the effects back to the cause, but we can also move from the cause and predict certain effects and get confirmation whichever way we go, which to me is ultimately the most compelling case. It's the systematicity. It's the unity. Um, you know, coherence is a really important thing for me philosophically. And, and to my mind, Gary, I've never found a, a, 
a philosophical system is coherent is Thomism. By that I mean like everything hangs together. Uh, nothing is sort of just arbitrarily there, just hanging out without any sort of link or connection to the other commitments that somebody has in their philosophical paradigm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's uh, so. It's not just that there's a lot of arguments in this book, but I, I the arguments I present and the things that I focus on are meant to all hang together and form this sort of great web of reason, if you will, to support the classical theistic worldview. Yeah, that's beautiful. So you can see how everything is connected from all sorts of areas, like from conscience, uh, consciousness to uh, contingency to the moral order. All of it hangs together in, in one coherent whole. And uh, and naturalism just doesn't meet that, that same standard, does it? No, it doesn't. You know, naturalism at the end of the day is it's it's run by what's called a principle of indifference, right? So the easiest way to think about how to compare these two is, is theism is run by a principle of perfection, which is God. Naturalism is run by a principle of, of indifference, which means, well, whatever else is at sort of the bottom of a naturalistic worldview or theory, it's not something that is in any sense minded. It's not aiming towards any particular outcomes. It's nothing of supreme value. It's neither you know, benevolent nor malevolent. And then you can ask, well, what would I expect from that as a root theory? And the answer is like, nothing, like really nothing, <laughs> right? Like, it's, it's, it's predictively almost useless. And, you know, naturalism is, is also committed to what's called source physicalism, which is the idea that uh, the physical realm precedes, long precedes, and causes the entire mental realm, right? Which just makes makes it really difficult uh, to explain the emergence of a mental realm at all. I think it makes it impossible, a conscious realm or a realm where there's any sort of rationality or free will when everything is really just coming down to uh, reducing to what physics or chemistry tells us. It's a very reductionistic worldview. So not only does naturalism just, I think, utterly fail in making any sort of accurate predictions or constraining like the, the possibility space at all, which is bad, right? Like even philosophers want theories that actually make predictions, even if they're really broad predictions, right? This is how we pick up confirmation. Um, and it's a very, it's very similar to scientific uh, thinking. Uh, so naturalism suffers horribly on that front, unless you complicate the naturalistic theory in a very ad hoc way. But then that's bad because I think that uh, principles of parsimony are important and that the more you sort of arbitrarily complicate a theory, the more you will have sort of hanging out at the root of your theory that cannot be explained because it's just put in there arbitrarily, so you're losing out on explanatory power, but you're also decreasing the intrinsic likelihood of a theory because complex theories uh, and the, have, are more likely to be false because they have more basic components and just probabilistically more ways that things could go wrong. So my book actually explores pretty deeply the philosophy of simplicity and why it actually matters, why simplicity is a general guide to truth. And it ultimately comes down to matters of probability. The more basic components something has, uh, the more ways things could go wrong and that could turn out to be false. So those are just some of the difficulties facing <laughs> naturalism from a very broad perspective, but they only they only become far worse when you actually try to examine the details of, of, <laughs> of, of their attempted explanations at at pretty much anything from consciousness to contingency, rationality, free will, and so on. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And then to boot, you also even address the problem of evil in your book. Yes, I do, and it's one of the longest sections of the book. So my, it's obviously a huge topic, and we've talked about sure. it at length on your show, Gary, but the, the, the short point I make here, my fundamental thesis is that, hey, look, superficially, suffering and evil might seem 
incompatible or less expected on theism, whereas on naturalism, a hypothesis of indifference, it might not seem so surprising. But I say that this is only superficially. Substantially, it's actually the reverse, that from theism uh, and an understanding of the core commitments of theism, we can tell a very uh, likely story, I think, a story that follows with strong probability from theistic commitments that does not make the distribution of suffering and evil, even great amounts of suffering and evil, uh, so surprising on theism. Whereas once you dive into the details of naturalism, especially since naturalism has such trouble explaining the conscious dimension, the qualitative dimension, uh, it really does not at all lead us to anticipate uh, this particular world of suffering, which naturalists like to focus on the most, the sort of thing that they think really favors their worldview is suffering. But suffering is a problem for conscious beings, right? It's a felt experience. And what I, what I show in the book is that this is exactly where naturalism struggles, perhaps the greatest, right? If they, you know, for the naturalist, everything is supposed to reduce the sort of mindless atoms that felt experiences are functionally useless. So naturalism really does not have a good explanation of this at all, and that would that would mean a good explanation of suffering at all. So it's, it's an important thing to consider, but at the end of the day, I do argue that even suffering and evil points back to the existence of God. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Pat, thank you so much for coming on Crust in the Afternoon. It's been my pleasure, Gary. Thank you. It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marianne Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Is social media leading to more young women getting cosmetic surgery? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. Our daughter and family just welcomed a new baby girl into the world. The boys in our family are now outnumbered for sure. I've witnessed how some of our girls often struggle with self-image and body issues. These issues are now being enhanced by social media. First Peter teaches us that it is not outward beauty that is important, but it should be that of our inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Studies indicate that young women are going under the knife for more cosmetic procedures in direct response to social media. Encourage the women in your life to practice self-compassion. Build them up. Help them find ways to be content in their own skin. True self-esteem is having confidence that I am who God says I am. For more on this, head over to our Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. And welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machida sitting in for the great El Cresta. Yeah, you know, arguments for God is uh, can be very tedious, very complex. Uh, uh, a lot of people, that's kind of above their pay grade. 
And uh, especially when it comes to somebody who knows the subject matter, as you can tell, uh, I love Pat Flynn. He is a machine when it comes to talking about theistic apologetics, theistic theology. Um, you know, he's been there. He's done that. And I'm so glad that he wrote it in a book so you could slowly work through his arguments. And the other reason I really enjoy his book is for those who maybe aren't up on the philosophical proofs and all the different argumentation, uh, you don't want to get involved with uh, a non-believer. This makes for a great book just to give them to say, hey, if you really want to understand why God exists and why it's important, uh, read this book. Challenge them to read it. It's called The Best Argument for God. It's available at sophiainstitute.com. And like I said, um, you'll learn a lot working through it. And I think if you give this book to a non-believer or somebody who's sitting on the fence and challenge them to read it, I think they will get a lot out of it too because he's very fair and he also makes some pretty solid hits in his argument. You listen to Crest Afternoon. I am Gary Machuda sitting in for L. And uh, we'll be right back for Darrow 2. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And welcome everybody to Cresta in the Afternoon. And uh, no, this isn't El Cresta. This is Gary Machuda sitting in for El Cresta. And uh, we are going to talk about the things that matter most. And one of my all-time favorite subjects, by the way, in this hour, uh, we're going to be talking about Mary. I mean, there never is a bad time to talk about Mary. But, you know, as much as we Catholics love Our Lady and love the Church's teaching on Mary, for non-Catholics, such is not the case. Mary, Mary is quite contrary for non-Catholics. Oftentimes, it's uh, Mary teaching is uh, stumbling blocks is the most difficult thing for non-Catholics to overcome. And even when uh, non-Catholics, Protestants become Catholic, um, Marian teaching is also one of the the last things to be accepted and uh, to feel comfortable with, especially Marian devotion. And that's why I'm really pleased in the second hour, we're going to be talking with Noah Braddon of an amazing ministry called Cross the Tiber dot uh, org and we're going to talk about three basic steps a guide in a sense for protestants to embrace mary and he's going to be drawing on his own experience he is a convert also in this hour we're going to be talking with the great brian mercier brian as you know is a on fire catholic who does a lot of social media evangelism and apologetics, and he is all over the place on social media defending the, the faith. So what better topic to discuss with Brian is evangelism. So uh, that's going to be fun, especially uh, the areas of evangelism in social media. That's a particular interest because, boy, today you don't even have to leave the comfort of your own chair or sofa. You could do evangelism 
on social media if you know how. And so we're going to talk about Brian also in this hour. But before we do all that, we're going to have to go to today's headlines with Steve Clark. Thanks, Gary. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Thursday, October 19th. It's the Feast of Saints John de Brebeuf, Isaac Joe, and Companions. Today's news brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. Palestinians in Gaza are waiting for aid convoys to start entering the country from Egypt. In Tel Aviv, Sarah Coates says at present, the entry point from Egypt remains closed. The official line from Egyptian authorities is maintenance work. It says it needs to fix the road, part of this road that forms the Rafah crossing, due to these continued Israeli airstrikes. It follows a deal brokered between President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to allow aid into the Gaza Strip. An estimated 20 trucks could enter Gaza through the Rafah crossing. However, conditions in Gaza are deteriorating rapidly and tensions continue to rise in the West Bank. Russia is revoking a treaty that bans nuclear testing. Lawmakers in Moscow Wednesday unanimously reversed ratification of the 1996 Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty at the urging of President Vladimir Putin. Russia says it will not test nuclear weapons unless the U.S. does first. Representatives Drew Ferguson of Georgia and Marionette Miller-Meeks of Iowa are among a number of House Republicans who say they've received death threats over Wednesday's vote for Speaker of the House. The two lawmakers pulled their support from Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan in the second vote. Sales of previously owned homes fell to their lowest level since 2010 in September. The group's chief economist blamed the lack of inventory and high mortgage rates for hampering sales. And a $50 million recovery fund will soon be available to Maui wildfire survivors. Hawaii Governor Josh Green says details about how families can apply and who will be eligible for the money will be released soon. Green says the cash can be used from rent to buying a new car. From your Ave Maria Radio that news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Cresta in the afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda, sitting in for El Cresta for Catholics. Uh, the mandate is to evangelize, to share the good news of Christ, in and be able to give an explanation for the hope that's in us. And that involves in many different ways, different forms, face to face. It could be through emails, or it could be on social media even. And to help us look at evangelism, we have a good friend, uh, Brian Mercier, with us. Brian is a professional Catholic speaker, retreat leader, apologist, author, and the founder and president of Catholic Truth, a ministry dedicated to sharing the good news of Christ to all out there, both Catholic and non-Catholic. And uh, he has a fantastic YouTube channel and other things as well called Catholic Truth. Check it out. And Brian Mercier, welcome to Crest in the Afternoon. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, you know, Brian, uh, for a lot of people, evangelism has a big fear factor. I mean, you might actually have to say something <laughs> to someone. And that could be pretty intimidating, especially if you, you aren't used to sharing the good news. Yeah, that's true. And I used to be afraid to share things, too. Or when I did try to share things, I would get my head chomped, you know, because mm -hmm. people knew more than I did or they didn't want to hear it. And, you know, it took a little bit of a trial and error. But I like what you said at the beginning of the show is that there's different ways that you can do it. 
You know, if you don't want to necessarily, if you're not a confrontational person, and that's what a lot of people think evangelism is, it's you have to be confrontational, mm-hmm. when in fact, I see it more as, I'm going, I just went to see a great movie. I loved that movie, and I want to go tell everybody how good that movie was. Or, you know what, I just read this book, or I went to this restaurant, and it was a fantastic restaurant, you have to try it. And some people are like, oh, I've been there, I don't like it. Okay, well, I just wanted to let you know. You know, like, mm-hmm. you might not get through to everybody, but I see a evangelism that way too we can share our faith share what we love hey you know i love going to church on sunday it gives me a sense of peace or you know what i pray when i'm stressed or i'm anxious you know or if someone is stressed and anxious you're like you know have you tried praying recently it's just a simple question that the person might say hey you know what i haven't i should give that a try you didn't have to go preach to someone, but you did evangelize them. You planted seeds of Jesus. And there's so many different ways to go about this. We even just putting something on your social media, saying, you know, talking about God or maybe a meme, or maybe when your coworkers ask you to, what'd you do this weekend? You, you don't say everything except church. You say everything and also, oh, I went to church as well. And you just let it hang. You know, there's many ways to just to throw it out there to let people think that there is more to this life. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if it's something like, uh, how are you doing today? And you say, boy, I really need to get to Eucharistic adoration. It has been a bad day, <laughs> you know? And, and then that, that piques their interest and also shows that, you know, this is something you find beneficial and, and it's non-confrontational. Right, exactly. And I've talked to so many people, like, before my conversion, and I think this is a big part of it, Gary, like, you know, we share what we love. We tell other people about the things we really like, you know, about our favorite sports teams, about our favorite restaurants, as I just said. So maybe, you know, we perhaps need to reflect on what God's done in our life more. Why am I following religion? Why am I Catholic? What has God done in my life? What benefits do I get out of it? And if I'm not receiving anything from it, then perhaps I need to put more into it. Perhaps I'm not giving enough to God. You know, perhaps my prayer life isn't that deep. But the more you fall in love with Jesus, the more you can't help but share him. The more you realize what he did for you on the cross, he gave everything for you then we can share a little bit of that with other people so that they can experience the benefits. I mean, I've literally had so many Catholics say when Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and other religions show up on my door, I slam the door in their face. And they're proud of themselves. Mm -hmm. I say, don't be proud of yourself. You just shut them out from the truth that they needed to hear. You have what they need, and you didn't share it with them. Our world is desperate, dark, dying, and despairing. They need what we have. And I think if we could just share that with them in little ways, it's good. Uh, you don't have to go beating people over the head, but I think people need what we have to say. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, at the very least, you can invite them in for some lemonade or water or, you know, uh, just show them courtesy and say, you know, I'm Catholic and this is what we do. I know Steve Ray, he evangelizes in the grocery store. You know, he'll help people out, give them cuts in line, and he'll say he does it because he's Catholic, you know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and that starts a whole conversation, you know, because he gave the person cuts in line because he's Catholic. It's like, oh, really? So why'd you become Catholic? 
Exactly. And I'm like Steve Ray. I preach to everybody at the gym, on the street, everywhere. Like, I'm called to be an apostle in a sense. You know, that's my calling. But not everybody is supposed to be that. It just yeah. might be a conversation with a friend or a family member who's struggling. And you say, hey, have you gone to church lately? And they say, oh, no, I don't go to church anymore. Oh, really? Well, why not? You know, oh, well, you know, I had something bad happen. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. What happened? See, now you're in a conversation. It's not, many people think evangelization is arguing and bickering. And yes, religion and politics, if you do it wrong, it can be about that. But it, it shouldn't be about that. It should just be like, oh, well, well, you know, tell me about it. What happened? Oh, well, you know, I was in a church one day and this person yelled at me. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I can assure you that the majority of people are not like that. And I can assure you even more that Jesus wants to see you there. He has the Eucharist, his body and blood, which he wants to give you. He wants to give you his peace. Maybe think about giving it another try. See how non-confrontational that is? It, everybody can do that. Yeah, and it, and it shows that you have respect for the person, right? Because you care about what they think and you care about what they do. And uh, you want to share with them, you know, the, the Jesus, which is the greatest thing in the world. Exactly. And you have no idea how many people, like, I don't, I wear my religion on my sleeve, but not overly, you know, I'm not a fundamentalist about it. I'm not one of these people who go out of their way to, you know, wear a sign on their neck that says the war, the end is near, you know, and right. you have to repent or be burned, you know, like, yeah. that's just, that's going to turn people off. But at work, people know I'm religious because I say things like, you know what, I went to church on Sunday, or I have to go to a baptism, or I'm, in, I'm running a youth group or something like that. And so people note in their minds, okay, he's religious. Sorry to be him, you know. <laughs> but on other times, you know, they notice that I'm joyful, that I'm happy all the time. They notice that, you know, I don't swear and I don't curse. And they notice that I'm different than other people. And so that's a form of evangelization, too, that people don't realize is evangelizing with your actions, not living like the world, not living like everybody else does, not being like everybody else. So that when these people, and I've had countless, like hundreds, maybe more, of conversations with people who are like, why are you always so happy? Why are you joyful? Hey, I've noticed that you don't swear. You know, they come up to me and I'll say, oh, it's because I'm a Christian, you know, and I, I love Jesus Christ and he changed my whole life and I'm just so happy now, you know, not in your face, but I get to tell them the truth, which will set them free. Yeah, so not only do you have to be conspicuous being Catholic, uh, you know, mentioning things that you do as a Catholic or maybe wearing paraphernalia that's Catholic, but you got to walk the walk, right? And that walk itself can make people thirst for what you have. Yes, 100%. And I yeah. just know from back in the day when I used to work at secular jobs and really not great environments that people 100% knew that I was different. Yes, I would wear a cross. Yes, I would, you know, sometimes have a rosary, you know, and some things like that. But they knew that I was different. And I remember this one time I slipped on a piece of ice at a restaurant I was working at. And I said, oh, holy Moses, I almost killed myself. I was going to say something else, but I didn't say it like that anymore. And uh, the cook behind the line was this kickboxing, axe-throwing, psychotic kind of guy. And he <laughs> looks at me, and he says, did you just say holy Moses? And I said, uh, yeah. 
And he said, what are you, some sort of religious freak or something? And um, I said, yeah, something like that. If you remember, Jesus said, you're going to be persecuted, so you have to take it. So I said, yeah, something like that, and walked away. And I heard him laugh, and he's like, Moses. So he nicknamed me Moses. And uh, one day I heard him take God's name in vain. And so I walked up to him, and I said, hey, Joe. He said, what? I said, I love God. He said, what did you just say to me, church boy? I said, I love God, Joe. And he's like, get out of my face. I'm going to kill you. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Don't kill me. You know, and we did that for a couple of weeks. And then um, I heard him say to one of the cooks, you know, church boy always has to, something to say, and maybe I'm offending him, and I don't even realize what I'm saying. But bottom line is six months later, him and I were in the back of the restaurant prep cooking. And uh, out of the blue, this huge guy almost breaks down and cries right in front of me. And he says, Brian, do you want to know why I hate my life? I said, what? He's like, do you want to know why I hate my life? I said, yes, I would. And he said, because my dad hated me. He didn't want me as a kid. And my mom did want me, but she wanted my dad more. So I've never had anyone to love me in my whole entire life. And so he poured out his soul to me for the first, like, 15 minutes. And... When he left that restaurant, he said I was only one of two people in the entire world that he respected because Mm. he might not have been religious, but he knew that I had something that was real and he knew that I wasn't afraid to share it. I didn't back down when he made fun of me and he respected me for that in the end. And that's just simple evangelization. And in the end, this guy ended up believing in God and he was so happy that he bought a Jesus clock and put it on his kitchen wall. But the day he told me that he believed in God, like a year later, was huge and yeah. it all be all because i chose to evangelize him yeah and if you uh put a bushel basket over and just blended in and swore and was just like any other person he wouldn't even know who to reach out to right i mean in a sense he saw something in you that he desired yes 100 percent. he might not even believe in god today or ever in his life it's because I told him that I loved God and just planted that little seed that he started even thinking about it. And he saw my positive, joyful, happy demeanor. And he said, you know what? Brian has something that I don't have. You know, what? what is it about him? And that's what I guess to come talk to me. And if I had never said anything, so many people like, oh, I don't want to make waves. I don't want to like say anything. Oh, we got to be respectful in the workplace. Yes, of course we do. But that's such an excuse for us not to evangelize. We have people trashing the Catholic Church in the workplace, and we're using the excuse that you can't talk about religion in the workplace, when in fact we could just say, hey, you know, a lot of the things that you said about the Catholic Church aren't actually true. You know, they're historical myths. I'd be happy to talk with you sometime about it if you're interested. Something nice, something simple, but you're throwing the ball back in their court and making them think about it. Yeah, 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 great advice, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, We're almost done with the segment. Um, Where can people go to get a hold of your uh, videos and other things? Yeah, check us out on Catholic Truth YouTube, Catholic Truth Podcast, Catholic Truth Social Media. We have a ton of um, videos on how to evangelize and how not to, (laughs) and also on how to apologetics, how to defend your faith and such. So just check out Catholic Truth and our website, catholictruth.org. Awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on Crust in the Afternoon. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right. This is Brian Mercier. Yeah. As you can tell, he's in love with the Lord, and he does amazing work in evangelism. Check out his uh, YouTube channel and his website. More to come right after this. You're listening to Crust in the Afternoon.
With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Father Benedict Groeschel. I often go back to my childhood. In church, we love to be reverent, to Christ present in the Eucharist, to Christ on the cross. But I was also impressed by the reverence of my friends in the Salvation Army. They had a little band. And I used to walk past the band on Sunday morning on my way to church. And I was just a child. But I said, you know, they're trying to pray to God. They're showing reverence to God. All this was reverence. Now what do I see? I hear one irreverence after another. And week after week, month after month, the media churns out things that make fun of religion in general and make fun of Christianity in particular and particularly make fun of the Catholic Church. No class. Absolutely no class. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. He is only one of four popes honored as the great. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Leo I was Pope at a time when Roman civilization was being overrun by barbarian armies. He stood as a light in the darkness and even saved the city of Rome from destruction by Attila and the Huns. Leo died in 461. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. We need your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Koharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at prolifeacrossamerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com. 
where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. And welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda, and sitting in for El Cresta, we're going to talk about Mary. Mary Mary is quite contrary for non-Catholics. Uh, Mary teachings are often the last ones to be embraced, usually the most difficult to overcome, not only because uh, the biblical evidence, uh, but there is some text that may be difficult that seem to go against Catholic teaching. And then you have the whole world of devotion, Marian devotion, that's just simply not there in Protestant communion. So um, there's a a process to embracing Mary and to help us work through those three-step process to uh, accept Marian teaching. We have Noah Brandon with us. Noah is a former Presbyterian who became Catholic after a culmination of a 13-year search for the fullness of faith. He's passionate about metaphysics and relational apologetics. He loves to investigate meaningful conversations. He's a graduate student of the University of Notre Dame, specializing in theology and moral philosophy. Lives in Atlanta with his wife, Carrie, their children, and two dogs. And Noah Braddon, welcome to Crest in the Afternoon. Gary, it's so great to be on with you. I always enjoy our conversation. So I was very excited to, to hear about this opportunity to come on and discuss this topic with you. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, uh, you know, I've worked in the field of apologetics since the early 1990s, and I, I can attest that uh, for many non-Catholics, uh, you know, it's so strange for a cradle Catholic to say this, but Mary's a big obstacle, where uh, Mary for us Catholics is, you know, uh, we have usually a warm filial devotion to her, and you kind of walk the walk in your own conversion, um, from Presbyterianism to Catholicism. Was Mary a big obstacle for you? She absolutely was, and, and growing up in a Calvinist, a five-point Calvinist-leading household that was quite devout and, and well-catechized within that tradition, I grew up with uh, not only vague and sort of generalized objections, but very specific, you know, moral concerns, uh, in particular related to the, the devotions, which I'm glad that you mentioned as a distinction between the Mariological doctrines and the pious devotion to Mary, because I think that oftentimes it's the latter that actually fuels the concerns about the former. So I think yeah. it's a really interesting thing to make that distinction, because I think it's important to to separate them while also acknowledging that they're they're inseparable in other ways, right? Or they're interconnected to the point that you can't talk about one without mentioning the other, but they do have their own unique pathways, and I think they need to be addressed, um, you know, in turn. And, and I'm glad that you mentioned that as a, as a segue into our discussion. Yeah, yeah, it's... Um... It's it's very foreign, you know, um, uh, because you normally uh, don't find. Well, in some communions, you may perhaps high church Anglicans, uh, you know, there might be some that uh, honor and revere Mary and actually have uh, devotional practices. But by and large, That's right. it's usually the exact opposite. There is almost a, an aversion to Marian devotion and doctrine. I think you're absolutely right, and with the sole exception of the Advent season, you know, a couple select Christmas uh, performances each year, mm -hmm. she was almost altogether absent from any Sunday morning sermon, unless the text, you know, was, was explicitly referring to her. Uh, but there was no additional teaching, no use of her as an archetypal figure within Christianity, at least not to any significant extent, which I think is notable because I think it touches on 
one of the underlying themes of this entire conversation and, and in the broader ecumenical dialogue that we're talking about is this reaction to reactions, and we tend to see overreactions to what are viewed as overreactions. So what I mean by all that is that what we often see nowadays in a lot of Protestant communions is a an even more stripped-down version of a Marian focus than the than the reformers themselves would have ever wanted to actually encourage. So it's an interesting thing because I think that we're seeing a continued de-emphasis of Mary throughout history since the Reformation within Protestantism, with, as you mentioned, I think Anglo-Catholicism, you know, high church Anglicanism, and maybe some high church Lutherans being the, the notable exceptions there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, you mentioned something there that's, I think, very interesting, and that is that the Protestant Reformers weren't um, as uh, anti-Marian as Protestants are today, right? They they held to a high view of Mary. That's exactly right. And uh, in particular, I know that the perpetual virginity of our Blessed Mother is something that is often derided. It's often actually dismissed as something that's ridiculous in light of a plain reading of Scripture. But I find, found it really interesting in my own studies prior to my conversion to Catholicism, going back and reading Calvin. And Calvin was actually completely unconvinced by the entire until argument. I'm going to misremember where exactly the passage is, but you know that the common refrain within Protestantism now is to talk about uh, the word until, right? Until you give birth, and kind of emphasize that as if it was a clear marker. But Calvin himself was unconvinced by that and held to her perpetual virginity. Luther did as well, and if I'm not mistaken, don't quote me on this last one, but I think that even Zwingli held to her perpetual virginity, or at least didn't reject it, which might be more accurate. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that kind of um, goes against, I think, the the view of history most Protestants have is that it's the the ancient church had all these incrustations, these Marian teachings added to the gospel, and then the reformers stripped it away, and uh, so now you have the gospel in its purity. But actually, the the reformers had a much more robust understanding of Mary, and it's really from the Protestant Reformation onward to today that those teachings and devotion and everything gets uh, reduced. That's exactly right, and I thought that it was really interesting to see that the Protestant Reformers themselves, you know, the Fathers of the Reformation, didn't have a problem with what is now seen as an obviously untrue thing. So that did make me start to question more and more of these misconceptions, and that's really that first step here. You mentioned the three-step process, and that first step really is the clearing up misconceptions, the addressing confusion, the revisiting what I thought I knew about Catholic doctrines related to Mary, and actually learning them again for myself from the actual sources. And I think that's a, a first step that takes different forms for different people, but I think that the clearing up misconceptions is a necessary first step for almost any Protestant who is going to be looking into Catholicism and investigating the truth claims of, of the Catholic Church. And um, I think it can take place in, in many forms. I mean, in my case, I had many good conversations with with friends who were gentle enough to point me to what the Church actually taught. I think that's an important role that we can continue to play for, for others. But then I also needed to go back and, and see for myself. So we mentioned, you know, going back to Calvin and going back to Luther and being surprised uh, that they hadn't excluded as many of the doctrines as I might have thought. Um, mm -hmm. But then, of course, going even further back and seeing the devotion to Mary 
among the early church fathers was notable for me. And I think seeing her continued veneration within the Orthodox communities was, was extremely impactful for me, because if it were this papal innovation that had largely been exaggerated during the medieval times, one would be quite surprised, I think, to find that the Eastern Orthodox had still clung to it with some, I mean, some might even say with a greater fervency. So there were these things that started to make me question the, the broader narrative that I believe. And it wasn't that anyone had fed it for, to me verbatim. I think it was the, the sum of many conversations, you know, many beliefs that I was taught when I was younger. Uh, but it led to quite a distorted view of Mary, uh, and in particular of the Catholic view of Mary, and what her veneration meant and why it's important. So I know I just said a lot, and I, I apologize for talking so much, but I think that those misconceptions were were really crucial, and I can't underemphasize that. I can't. I cannot overemphasize that enough. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Great points, and and for a, a lot of, uh, I mean, the only way that you would know what Catholicism teaches as a non-Catholic would be to read official documents or the Catechism, which, of course, non-Catholics there wouldn't be a motivation to do that. So you probably learn it secondhand from ex-Catholics who left the church and. I know your experience and mine is that a lot of the people that leave the Catholic Church are really poorly catechized. Mm, And uh, so it's not surprising that non-Catholics have a lot of distorted ideas about Mary. I think you're exactly right. And because of that secondhand or sometimes even, you know, probably even tertiary sources, you know, people who are hearing it from jaded people who are Mm -hmm. then telling it to you, you know, the more you play that telephone game, uh, the more distorted the message gets. But then furthermore, I think a lot of people who leave the Catholic Church, regardless of their catechesis, um, tend to have very negative and oftentimes strong negative emotions toward the Church, uh, whether rightfully or wrongfully, depending on their, you know, uh, on their situation. And I say that because I think we can be empathetic to people who are struggling with that, but I think we also need to be aware that those can be fueling this negativity, and um, sometimes it makes it even more complicated when you're hearing about Mariology from jaded ex-Catholics who are angry at the Church. It's just a, it's a lot of distortion happening, and I don't mean it to be, I don't mean to suggest it's malicious, I think that it's somewhat uh, unavoidable in those types of circumstances from those sources. Yeah. So, so the first step is to clear the field, right? To to get rid of all these uh, myths and distortions, uh, debunk them, and uh, and that kind of clears the field for moving on to the second step. But I, I want to do that on the other side of the break. So, uh, for you, it, it sounds like uh, it was studying early church history and early Protestant history that enabled you to to clear the path. I think that's right. I think prior to doing that, though, I think it's important to mention that I had to have some of the principles cleared up, the intercession of saints, how it works, why it matters, why it's not crazy to do this as Christians, to ask uh, people who have you know passed away from this life to intercede on our behalf. I had to have some of the underlying principles first explained to me before I was open and receptive to going back to the sources. So I think that is uh, sort of the misconception that paved the way to clearing up more misconceptions. And I think one thing that can be very challenging, right, is that this requires a lot of self-examination, and it requires a lot of intellectual humility uh, in order to admit that you could be wrong. Because in one sense, if you're, if you're set against the possibility of, of being proven wrong, I mean, this is true for Catholics as well as Protestants as well as non-religious types, there's no real progress in any open discourse. I mean, no progress is achievable. Uh, it's not really open discourse at that point. So I think that's an important thing. It's just examine your own 
your, yourself and examine your beliefs and be willing to, to learn. And I think that that's a, a great posture, at least to start having those conversations. Yeah, especially with Mary, where I, there's a big lacuna, right? Because she's not really mm. spoken of and not really preached. And there's not, uh, you know, the, the same background like you have in Catholicism. So uh, I, I think that's actually uh, something great, because uh, I think when it comes to Mary, you can approach her uh, Mary teaching with a degree of intellectual humility, right? Because uh, there hasn't been that much teaching on it. That's exactly right. And I think that um, trying to understand where the Protestants are coming from as Catholics can also really help us a lot, you know, in facilitating positive conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're chatting with Brian, uh, Noah Braden of CrossTheTiber.org. Talking about Mary and three steps to embracing Mary for non-Catholics. More to come right after this. You listen to Crust in the Afternoon. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. 60 Seconds with Father Mitch Pacwa. The state has responsibility to orient things, but they can't take over the rights of the family, like in China, to have one child and that's it. It's a disaster over there. How many tens of millions of abortions have gone on? And one of the things that, as a result of that, is because of the preference to have boy children rather than girls, you have, for every thousand boys, there are 850 girls. This is a great imbalance. Same thing is going on in northern India. So this is where they, the government cannot take away the primary and inalienable responsibility of married couples and families. And they cannot employ methods which fail to respect the person and fundamental human rights, beginning with the right to life, 
The government cannot force you to kill innocent human beings and still be a humanistic government. It's an evil government. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. How does the Catholic Church regard the economy and social justice? The Catholic Catechism states the development of economic activity and growth in production are meant to provide for the needs of human beings. Economic life, first of all, is ordered to the service of persons, the whole man and the entire human community. Human work comes from persons who have been created in the image and likeness of their Creator God, who commissions them to prolong the work of creation by subduing the earth both with and for one another. Work is a duty, says the Catechism. St. Paul writes, If anyone will not work, let him not eat. Work honors the gifts and talents God has bestowed on his creatures. Work can be redemptive when its hardships are placed in union with Jesus. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda sitting in for El Cresta. And we're talking about three steps to embracing Mary for non-Catholics with Noah Braddon of CrossTheTiber.org. And Noah, in the last segment, uh, we went through the first step, that is uh, learning some basic principles and kind of clearing the field, getting rid of misconceptions and myths and distortions. Uh, What's the second step to embracing Mary? Yeah, so the second step, at least the way I'm I'm viewing this in my own approach, is to go beyond the misconceptions and to start to learn and study the depth and the scope of Mariology. And this is something that I touch on a little bit, I think, when I alluded to going back to the sources. But I think the first step was more geared toward clearing up some exaggerated claims that I may have, have gotten secondhand or some just entirely distorted claims that have actually no grounding in in actual teaching and clearing the way to actually understanding what the teachings really are. But then I think this next step is to go deeper into the teachings, to learn why they are taught the way they are. And I think one of the biggest revelations during that period was to realize the importance of uh, Christology with respect to Mariology and how every Mm -hmm. Mariological doctrine corresponds to a Christological doctrine, because I had started to hear this refrain from Catholics that, no, 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 our veneration of Mary is actually something that points us back to Jesus. You know, she's like the moon reflecting the sun's glory. Everything that she has that's worth venerating is actually, you know, credited and and due to God, the source. And I started to have this concept of secondary causes, right, and how God was working through her in a particular way. And I was starting to to see that, but I think that learning the direct connection, learning about the direct connection and the parallels between Christological doctrines and Mariological doctrines was crucial for me, and I I would highly recommend mentioning that very early on, I think, in any ecumenical dialogues with with any Protestants or evangelical-leaning Christians who are struggling with Mariology, I think that that's an important thing to not only mention and sort of allude to, but actually to go into it with them and explain how that connects. And And I don't know if that was impactful on you, Gary, but for me it was perhaps one of the biggest keys, I think, to unlocking Mariology and starting to appreciate it, and not just say, oh, this is not bad, but maybe this is something worth studying 
something that I might benefit from because that's a big shift in mindset. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, you know, it takes the natural love of all Christians for Christ, right? And it, it, it's able to illuminate uh, God's role for Mary in the plan of redemption, right? Because it's uh, non-Catholics generally are focused on Christ alone, you know, Christomonis, you know, focus. And it's really, it's because we love Christ as Catholics that we have veneration for Mary and we believe the things we do about Mary. And, uh, of course, Mary as mother of God is, the, I think, the chief dogma, which really integrates with who Christ is. That's exactly right, and that was something that even in the Calvinist-leaning Presbyterian group that I grew up in, Mary as the Mother of God, it was a term that was never mentioned. It was something that I actually asked uh, a good friend, an elder at the church that I grew up in about, and he acknowledged it, he affirmed it, but with some hesitation, and he said that he preferred Mother of Jesus which, of course, he's not trying to make a distinction between Jesus and God, but then that brings us to an interesting question, is why why make that emphasis? And it was an interesting thought experiment, because I went back even to that one, which is not actually rejected by, I don't believe, any of the mainline Protestant groups, not formally, even though modern evangelicals and modern Protestants often are unfamiliar with it, at least in terms of that terminology. But uh, I thought that was really interesting. Um, And then, of course, it's equally, if not more so, emphasized within the Eastern, within Eastern Christianity with the, the Theotokos, and that language features heavily in Eastern Catholic, Eastern Catholic liturgies. Yeah, and so uh, coming to appreciate the Christological, you know, the how Marian doctrine and devotion is tied to our beliefs about Jesus uh, gives importance to Marian teaching, because I know, uh, again, working with a lot of non-Catholics, that often when they view Marian dogmas, that it's almost like add-ons. They don't really see the import of it, um, so they could take it or leave it. But when you can make those connections with Christ, it, then it gives meaning, it gives import to all the all of the Marian doctrines. You're exactly right, Gary, and I think that going beyond the Christological connection to our own personal application was that next step, uh, mm. because I think that that helped me start to see how so many of the beliefs about Mary were things that I actually believed about our future reality as Christians. It was just something that I believed had not yet happened. So I started to, to go back and question these types of things, and I'm talking perhaps explicitly about uh, the assumption of Mary, right? I mean, she has a resurrected mm-hmm. body that is in heaven with Christ. That's something that I, as a Presbyterian, grew up believing was the future for all Christians. It, so the only real problem was the fact that we didn't believe that anyone yet was in that position, or at least not in that particular way. So it just started to um, give me new appreciation, I think, for how how relevant it was, I think, to my own life as a Christian. So there's a Christological foundation, which was crucial for me to start appreciating it as something that's valuable and something that doesn't actually take away from the Christological focus. But then there was that personal application for all of us Christians, because Mary really is the archetypal Christian. You know, she's the um, sort of prototypical—well, I mean, um, she just represents— the fullness of a life in Christ and what it means to fully devote yourself to Christ and to say yes to Him uh, with your whole being. And that's a beautiful 
goal for all of us as Christians, right? And to see that on display in Mary and to recognize how that corresponded to my own life as a Catholic was another profound layer in terms of that scope and breadth of, of Mariology that I was talking about for step two. Yeah, yeah. And one thing that really helped me to appreciate Mary, although I was a cradle Catholic, you know, you're always learning new things. Uh, is Mary as a queen mother, you know, and mm, yeah. and understanding that by honoring Mary as the queen mother, we're really honoring Christ as the king, the true and legitimate Messiah king. And so, you know, at that point, once you realize it, uh, to dismiss Mary or downplay her, downplay her role uh, is really to dismiss and downplay an aspect of Christ's messiahship. I'm glad you said that, Gary, because I think that was something that came up, and I'm going to just avoid trying to misquote anybody, but that's what came up absolutely <laughs> when I was reinvestigating the Church Fathers, and so many times their emphasis on aspects of Mary's life and role was absolutely pointing back to this Christological reality, and their aversion you know, to people who were denying the Theotokos uh, was actually an emphasis on the Christological denial that was implied by, you know, by it. So that mm. continued to reinforce, because then we see both the positive and these negative motivations uh, for maintaining these Mariological doctrines, not to mention the historical continuity of them. So the combined strength of that was, was quite compelling, and it, it made me start to realize that they were not only reasonable, but that they had been believed by the vast majority of Christians since the beginning. So that was that was a hard thing for me to overlook at that point. But admittedly, this still hasn't really gotten me, abs- at, you know, this has not gotten me comfortable with the devotion necessarily, but this is still mm-hmm. talking about that intellectual, theological doctrine level. Right. So, uh, so yeah, so I was going to say, you didn't just pick up a rosary and start praying the rosary immediately as soon as you realized that. <laughs> no, no, it was, it was hard. It was, it was admittedly one of the harder devotions for me as as a Calvinist uh, convert from Calvinism was one of the hardest devotions for me to embrace, uh, even after all of these things had occurred that we've been talking about tonight, even after I'd gotten to these places intellectually and doctrinally. I would defend the Mariological doctrines, but still struggled with some of the devotions. Um, So during that time, I leaned heavily into just asking for her intercession whenever I could and kind of trying to embrace them to the points that I could and continue to familiarize myself with the reasons why, um, why these devotions mattered so much. And I think that that especially impacted me when I started to investigate the Mariological devotion of saints and how it impacted their walk with Christ. And I'm thinking namely right now of uh, St. Maximilian Kolbe and his great devotion to Mary, and how he wrote heavily about that in his journals, uh, even up to the point where, you know, he was martyred, uh, his devotion to following Mary uh, to Christ up until the end was, was really interesting, and left a, quite an impact on me, because I started to not only realize that I was embracing the underlying doctrine and the underlying principles, but I was starting to see that I was missing something by not having these devotions part of my own life. And I think that's a very, another misconception of sorts that was cleared up much later. And I think that paved, uh, paved the way yet again for another layer 
to be peeled back in terms of my appreciation for Mary and my embrace of Mariological practices. Yeah, yeah, that's... uh... Yeah, it's it, like you mentioned. It's kind of like peeling an onion, right? There's just layer after layer, and uh, and you don't stop either. You, you, there's just so much out there, and you know, so much depth in terms of contemplation, meditation, church teaching, the writings of the saints. You spend a whole lifetime. Uh, no, we're almost to the end of the segment. I want to talk a little bit about CrossTheTiber.org. What exactly is it? Well, thank you, Gary. I appreciate that. So CrossTheTiber.org is an apostolate that I co-founded with Ben Handelman, and we set this up as an opportunity for people who are investigating Catholicism uh, to enter conversations with real Catholics who have been well-catechized and oftentimes come from Protestant, atheist, or secular backgrounds so they can relate to their particular struggles. And we're effectively trying to replicate the relational apologetics um, approach that I received and others have received from real people, right, in person, from friends who take the time to have these conversations. We're trying to offer that to people who don't have Catholics in their life that they can turn to. So there's a plethora of information out there about Catholicism, but it can be hard to navigate, uh, especially online if you don't have uh, any directions. So we are coming alongside people in their journeys and uh, doing our best to help. So if anyone's listening uh, who's not a Catholic and interested in learning about it, it's entirely free, entirely virtual, and we would love to chat with you. So crossthetiber.org. Thank you so much, Gary. Yeah, and the beautiful thing about your organization is that you try to group people together. So, for example, if you have a group of um, uh, Seventh-day Adventists on the journey, you know, you, you try to pair them with other Seventh-day Adventists on the journey or... or Preferably with teachers that came from that background, or Calvinist, or a Baptist, you know. So uh, that way, it's not like you're in a virtual room with strangers. You're actually in a room with people that pretty much came from the same background, and it's open to seekers as well. It's not just people who want to enter into OCIA, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, we make no. Um, there's no requirements in terms of your commitment, other than to approach the conversations in good faith and to be open to learning. You know, we're not going to try to force the information down um, people's throats. We're just going to try to point people to information that they can trust in their search for the truth. Now, of course, we believe uh, openly that uh, the fullness of truth is found within Catholicism. So we're doing everything within our power to to encourage people toward that end. Um, We very much are approaching it in terms of open discourse. It's an opportunity to talk and explore ideas with people who care and uh, people who can talk to you at that level that you'd like to go at. Yeah, very good. Well, Noah, hey, thank you so much for coming on Crest in the Afternoon. We appreciate it. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Gary. And that's Noah Braddon, uh, crossthetiber.org. You're listening to Hands On, uh, you're listening to Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda. We'll be right back right after this. Do you have an unrelated twin, a doppelganger walking around somewhere? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. Scripture points to many who may have been actual twins. Doubting Thomas, one of the twelve apostles, may have been a twin. His surname is Didymus, which means double or twofold. Is it possible for each of us to have a twin of sorts, an unrelated person who so closely resembles us that they pass for a twin? Research cited by Dr. Peter Atia indicates that 99.9% of the human genome is identical across all humans. So it is possible that at least one of the billions on Earth could have a slight bit more 
genetic material that makes them look like me or you. But it isn't just looks. Even certain behaviors studied tend to be more similar in lookalikes. The next time someone says you look like George Clooney, research says it's possible. For more on this, look for the Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. You've probably heard Venerable Father Patrick Payton say, the family that prays together stays together. Well, as the director of the Payton Institute, I like to add that the family that plays together also prays together. Family play rituals like family days, game nights, and other similar activities aren't just fun things to do. They're ways Catholic families remind each other to celebrate the life God has given them. Daily play rituals remind families that both in good times and in hard times, God always wants us to look for reasons to rejoice. That's one reason family rituals for playing together are such an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. You're listening to Cresta in the Afternoon. I am Gary Machuda, HandsOnApologetics.com. And uh, boy, it's it's been a pleasure and an honor to sit into the great El Cresta chair and talk for two hours about the things that matter most. And uh, boy, what what else is there to talk about than evangelism, sharing Jesus with others, learning about Mary. Uh, you know, it's just great to be Catholic. It's great to dive into Scripture and uh, yeah, and, and learn about God. I mean, that's basically what we talked about for the past two hours. And check out this ministry. It's a, a very good ministry, especially for seekers. CrossTheTiber.org. Highly recommend it to anybody out there that maybe just wants a friendly ear or would like to hear a Catholic perspective on stuff. They they try to be very faithful to the church, and they love Christ. What more can you ask for? This is Christian Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.